Good morning to everyone. Uh, after our two-week hiatus, uh, we return this day to our study of the book of Romans. And so to that end, I invite you, I encourage you to turn with me in God's word to chapter one of the book of Romans. As you are finding your way there, I want to repeat a comment I made, oh, six, seven, perhaps eight months ago. I can't remember the precise date. It's actually a comment I I lifted from uh, something Carl Truman uh, wrote a while back. And uh, Carl Truman, in this article, he, he basically says, his point is simply this, that in our day, our day, current history, Two uh, powerful forces have merged in our society. And so powerful force number one right here. Powerful force number two right here. And in our day, these two forces have merged, uh, thereby creating a perfect storm. Uh, The first powerful force is what he calls moral myopia. Moral myopia. I love that word, myopia. Simply means short-sightedness. And so some of you, if you were to remove your glasses right now, you could still see your hand in front of your face. You could still see the back of the head of the person in front of you. But as you look closer and closer to where I am standing, things grow. They become increasingly fuzzier. And so what am I doing right now? You're not quite sure. I might be waving my hand or it could be something flying by my head. It's all kind of fuzzy. That's myopia, short-sightedness. We can't see what's off in the distance. So Truman's point is this, that this is a powerful force in our day, moral myopia, meaning what? People, by and large, oh, dare I say the vast majority of people, are unable to see the future ramifications of today's moral relativism. Unable. They are short-sighted. They are unable to see the future repercussions, the future ramifications of today's moral decisions, and in particular, what we call moral relativism. That's force number one, powerful force number one. The second powerful force is this, an aggressive an aggressive agenda of absolute conformity. It's a mouthful. It's really not that complicated. An aggressive agenda of absolute conformity. This is a second powerful force in our day, whereby our society, by and large, to a great extent, demands. It requires that all people accept its moral, its standard of morality, or dare I say, its lack of standard. And this is being pushed aggressively. It is an aggressive agenda of absolute conformity whereby all people are expected to conform to the standard, prevailing standard of morality or lack thereof. And so these two powerful forces, moral myopia and an aggressive agenda of absolute conformity, They have merged in our day. And what's the result? 
The result is this. This is the message that's being sent to you. Second row, fifth row, tenth row, twelfth row, male, female, it doesn't matter. This is the message that our society is sending to you today. Here it is in a nutshell. You must, you must embrace an ethic of sexual anarchy bounded only by the principle of mutual consent, or else we will dismiss you as the moral equivalent of a racist. That is the message. If you have not heard that message, I'm going to offend you right off the bat. Your head's in the sand. You need to get it out of the sand. Take a look around and just hear it. Uh, It's startling. It is alarming. But it is because these two powerful forces have merged in our day. And it's being pushed politically. It is being pushed legislatively. It is being pushed in the educational system. It is being pushed by just about every facet of media. Pushed, pushed, pushed. How did we get here? There's a good question. How did we get here? You want the answer? Romans chapter 1. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
I dare say, the Apostle Paul could have written that at 7 o'clock this morning. Talk about current news. Talk about hitting the nail on the head. Or my favorite expression, talk about being bang on. The Apostle Paul, God's Word, speaking truth directly into our lives, directly into our society, and dare I say directly to our country. Uh, you know where we are, if you've been here uh, the last, last month or two, you know where we are in our study of this book, uh, Romans. You know, you're ever stranded on a desert island? You know that question, which book of the Bible do you want to have with you? It's this one. You might think it's another one. It's, it's this one. You want Romans with you. Uh, this is perhaps, I mean, the Bible as a whole, obviously the greatest book ever written within Scripture. Some say you shouldn't say this. I'm going to say it anyway. The book of Romans, it is it. It is the pinnacle. You understand the book of Romans, you have an open door to all of Scripture. It is the key that unlocks the Bible. It consists of five sections, five chunks, let's say. The first section begins where I began reading verse 18 of chapter 1, and it wraps up in verse 20 of chapter 3. That is the first section. What do I mean by section? I mean simply this, that in these verses, in this portion, section of this book, Paul has a specific purpose. He's trying to accomplish something. He's trying to do something. We're approaching it using what? Our imagination. I don't think we're going too far here, but we're approaching it using our sanctified imagination, as if we were standing in a courtroom, and the Apostle Paul were a prosecuting attorney. The charge, he brings the charge, he brings the accusation right at the end of the 18th verse. By their unrighteousness, men, men, women, humanity, everyone, by their unrighteousness, what do they do? What do we do? They suppress the truth. That's the charge. And now all he's going to do in the rest of this section is prove it. He's going to prove it by appealing to two witnesses. Remember, we are in a court of law. And the first witness is creation, or what we describe, fancy expression, but significant, as general revelation. God reveals himself. He reveals himself firstly, generally speaking. How? Through the created order. The universe, the cosmos, this is the first witness. And so Paul interacts with this witness beginning in verse 19 all the way through to the end of chapter 1, verse 32, and this witness demonstrates that the Gentiles, those people we might describe as, though, as not having the Bible, people who don't have the Bible, creation demonstrates that they, even they, have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. There's an objection. It begins in chapter 2, verse 1, through to verse 16, more or less. And Paul responds to that objection. And then he calls his second witness. Creation goes back and sits down. And now Paul calls his second witness Scripture, the Bible itself. Not general revelation, not what God reveals generally concerning himself in the cosmos, but what God reveals specially or specifically, supernaturally, in his word, the Bible, the Scriptures. And Paul demonstrates in particular that the Jews, or in our day, in our context, we might speak of those who do have the Bible, they do possess it, that even they are guilty of what? Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And that testimony begins in chapter 2, verse 17, goes through to the end of chapter 2, verse 29. And then there's an objection. 
Paul responds to that objection beginning in chapter 3 through to verse 8. And so we hear from these two witnesses their testimony, creation targeting those who don't have the Bible, Scripture targeting those who do have the Bible. In Paul's context, context, Gentiles, Jews, all-encompassing, all humanity, and the charge is this, Paul's point is this, I don't care who you are. I don't care when you lived. I don't care where you lived. I don't care what your level of education is. I don't care what your experience is or what your cultural context is. Here is the accusation. Everyone, everywhere, in all places, at all times, is guilty of suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. And then we hear from the judge himself, God. And he passes sentence in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 through to verse 18. And that sentence is summed up in this expression, all are under sin. That is the sentence. And then there is condemnation. Really, verses 19 through 21, every mouth is stopped. Absolute silence. There are no objections. But all, the whole world, Paul says there in chapter 3, verse 19, the whole world is accountable to God. That's the first section. You know where we are. We're hearing from that first witness, creation. Again, the testimony begins in verse 19. Remember Paul's purpose. Remember his point, it is simply to demonstrate that everyone has suppressed the truth by virtue of their unrighteousness. He's honing in, he's targeting here, in particular, the Gentiles, the individual who doesn't have the Bible, never had the scriptures, perhaps never even heard the word Jesus. Well, well, how can God condemn these people? How can God judge these people? And Paul appeals to creation, and his argument is simply this. They have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And creation testifies it. And he makes three essential points, beginning in verse 19. The first point of this is this. The knowledge of God is plain to them. Look at what he says. Those aren't my words. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain. It's obvious to them. Why? Not because you revealed it to them, my friend. Not because I revealed it to them. Not because some missionary went and revealed it to them. What does Paul say? Because God has shown it to them. Do you realize on the judgment day, no one's going to stand before God, or they might, I don't know. (laughs) They, They might stand there and say, well, look, no one ever told me. No one ever told me. And no, not, no irreverence intended here, to which God, I, our Lord, I, I expect, would simply reply, be quiet. I told you. I told you. I revealed myself to you. And it was plain. It was blatantly obvious. How so? Verse 20. Because his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature. They have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That's point number one. The knowledge of God is plain to man. Point number two that Paul makes is simply this. Man rejects 
the knowledge of God. Verse 21, for although they knew God. Oh, I've said it dozens and dozens of times. I'm starting to sound like a broken record. I know, but here it is again, please, because many of us wrestle with this and struggle with this and do not fully appreciate this. Man never rejects God for intellectual reasons. He always says he does, but he never does. No one in any place, any time, in any situation or context has ever rejected God for intellectual reasons. Man rejects God for moral reasons. He hates him. And the intellectual reasons are simply the excuse that man gives. I'm not making that up. That's what Paul says there. Although they knew God, here's the problem. They did not honor him as God. They didn't want to. Or give thanks to God. They didn't want to. Everyone commits the same sin that Adam and Eve committed. Adam and Eve rejected God. It was not for intellectual reasons. It was for moral reasons. In the day you eat the fruit from that tree, oh, you, my friend, you will be like God. That is man's fundamental problem. Friend, you will never argue anyone into the kingdom. Please understand that. Argue? Sure, go for it. I have no problem with that. I engage in arguments once in a while. Defending the faith, apologetics, sure, I'm all for it. Because the Spirit will illuminate the mind and illuminate the understanding so that people grasp. But please understand, the heart must first be changed. And men and women must be radically changed, born again, whereby the object of their hatred becomes the object of their love, God. Not the little figment that they have in their imagination of God but the almighty creator as he reveals himself and makes himself known in Scripture. That's point number two. Man rejects the knowledge of God. Point number three is this. Man corrupts the knowledge of God. Verse 21, what happens? He becomes futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Complete corruption. Now beginning in verse 22, right through to the end of the chapter, Paul does something, it is a, he, I mean, this whole book is interesting, but this is particularly interesting, fascinating. He draws out the implication, he draws out the, the result, let's say. Okay, we get it. Creation testifies to man's predicament. And, and so what is the result? There's actually a twofold result. One result, but it has two parts, there are two parts to it. And now why I say this is interesting is for the following reason. Paul repeats it three times. So there's only one result. The result has two parts. But he insists on repeating it, expressing that same point, just hammering away at it three times. Let me show you what I mean. Well, let me give you at the outset what this result is. The result is simply this, this twofold result, that because of man's rejection of truth, because of man's suppression of truth by his own unrighteousness, the twofold result is this. Man revels in idolatry. Just revels in it. Bathes himself in it. And God, consequently, reveals his wrath. That is the result. The twofold result. Paul states it three times. Let me show you man reveling in his idolatry. Look firstly. Here's the first instance of it. Verse 22 Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Number one, he repeats it, idolatry. The second time, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. He's making the same point twice now. He repeats it a third time, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So there's the first part of the result, that man revels in idolatry, and Paul declares it three times. Likewise, he declares three times the second part of the result, that God reveals his wrath. And so look at verse 24. Here's instance number one. Therefore, in other words, because of their idolatry, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Instance number two, verse 26 For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Instance number three, verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, what did God do? God gave them up. Same expression three times. Gave them up, verse 24. Gave them up, verse 26. Gave them up, verse 28, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Twofold result. Man revels in his idolatry, and God reveals his wrath. Why does Paul state the same result three times? It's nuanced. He is emphasizing something slightly different, slightly different in each case. And so let's work through the three together. We begin with the first. Again, look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So they're reveling in idolatry. God reveals his wrath, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so idolatry leads to impure deeds arising from lustful hearts. What is Paul emphasizing here? He's simply emphasizing the following. His point is simply this. We become what we worship. That's it. We become what we worship. They have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. God has made the knowledge of him plain to them. They have rejected it. They have become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They now revel in idolatry. And please do not equate, do not limit idolatry simply to bowing down before a totem pole or some golden or silver or brass or wooden object. Lots of people are committing idolatry as they watch the World Cup of Soccer in Brazil. I've got no problem with soccer, folks. You know that. A little disappointed that England lost yesterday to Italy. But to see some of these grown men crying on the television and their lives, just the ebbs and flows of their... I feel like shouting out, get a life, my friend. Get a life. 
Oh, the idolatry. We will turn anything into an idol. Meaning what? We simply make it more important than God. It defines us. It defines us. Everything about us. It compels us and drives us and becomes the impetus for life. So do not restrict, do not equate. Well, I've never prostrated myself before some little image. Don't limit it to that. We can turn our emotions into idols. We can turn our experiences into idols. We can turn our marriages, our children, even things that are good, we can turn them into idols. We'll turn anything into an idol. Why? Because we're worshiping beings. We often get a little confused here. I'm off on a tangent. I'll get back in a minute. We often get confused here. We look at all of the religions in the world and all of these spiritualities, and we conclude, you see, man is looking for God. Man is seeking God. All of these religions, the fact that man is a religious being, testifies to the fact that everyone in their sincerity and in their own simplicity, they're, they're, they're looking for God. No, 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 my friend. No, no, back up. Man, the fact that man is a religious being, the fact that there are so many religions in the world, th- these things do not testify to the fact that man is moving toward God. They confirm the fact that man is moving away from God. Because man can't help himself. He will worship something. We're wired for it. It's how we're designed. It's how we're created. We worship something. Well, if you reject the creator, the one who is blessed forever, if you reject the true knowledge of the true God, if you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, what are you left with? You are left with some form of idolatry. Yes, some form of religiosity. But do not confuse that or mistake that for some sort of expression of sincerity whereby I'm searching for the truth. No, you're running from the truth. You're heading in the opposite direction and all of these different religions and spiritualities out there this day testify to that fact. And so what's God's response to this idolatry? He gave them up, verse 24, gave them up, surrendered them, abandoned them in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What's the point there? Simply this, we become like the animals. We become like what we worship. Whatever is the object of our worship, our affection, we will sooner or later, some point, become like it. That's why there's always a direct link between idolatry and sexual immorality. That's why there's always a direct correlation between idolatry and the dehumanization of man. Because the further we get away from our creator, the less human we actually... Here's the irony, folks the less human we actually become. I think I put a quote on the sermon notes. I know I did. James Montgomery Boyce, right at the bottom of the sermon notes in the bulletin, he nailed it right here. No people, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. That's profound. No people ever rise higher than their idea of God. And conversely, A loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of a people's moral virtue and even what we commonly call humanity. That's Paul's point here. Simply this, let me repeat it. We become what we worship. Man revels in idolatry and God reveals his wrath. Now he repeats the point. He repeats the result for a second time, but it's nuanced. He's emphasizing something slightly different. He demonstrates that because of their idolatry, God gives them over, verses 25 through 27, to unnatural relations arising from dishonorable passions. 
So follow along again. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God, and so the knowledge of God, for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason... So there's the first part of the equation. They revel in idolatry. Now here's the second part of the equation. God gives them over. He reveals his wrath. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gets very explicit here. Very explicit. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is he emphasizing here? He is simply emphasizing the depth to which man will go. God, this is so important we grasp this, especially here in the United States, it's important we grasp this, especially in light of current current affairs. Because often when we think of God punishing sin, we, we, we might think in terms of natural disasters, right? Calamities, that's God punishing. We don't have time to get into that. What we certainly know is this, because that's Paul, it's Paul's point in the text. God punishes unchecked sin with sin. That's his point. God reveals his wrath against sin by giving man over to his, his sin. You know, we, we will often, we will hear people at times today uh, think, well, you look at where we are at morally as a nation, and you look at what's going on here now and, and what's being practiced, accepted, and, and pushed. Well, God, God's going to judge us, right? You ever heard anybody talk like that? No. no. The prevalence and the rise of unchecked sin is God's punishment. It is God's judgment. It is his judgment upon idolatry, that he gives them up, gives them up to unnatural relations arising from dishonorable passions. And Paul's point here is just to show the depths, the extent to which man will fall. And you know it. I've read the text a couple of times now. You know he is zeroing in on a, on a particular sin, and it is the sin of homosexuality. Now, there are three things I want you to notice. Perhaps I should say more, but three definitely that I want you to notice um, in these verses. Find them in verse 26, all three together certainly in verse 27. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice is this. uh, Homosexuality, and Paul makes this point here. Homosexuality is an unnatural act. Unnatural. Look what he says, verse 26, middle of the verse. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. In other words, for those that are unnatural. And he repeats it, in case we missed it, verse 27, changing the gender. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Uh, Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's worth mentioning this, and it's worth noticing this, especially in the light of so many present-day discussions. Paul, Paul in this chapter, he doesn't say, look, homosexuality is unbiblical. He could have done that, and he could have quoted from the book of Leviticus or the incident involving Sodom and Gomorrah, any other number of passages. He could have made that argument. It is a solid argument, but he doesn't make that argument. He could have said, look, homosexuality is unethical. 
contrary to the law. But he doesn't go down that road either. He could have said homosexuality is, uh, I suppose, unadvisable. Look at its consequences. Shortens life expectancy, all sorts of things like that. And um, he could have emphasized, he could have done any of those things, but he doesn't. His principal argument is simply this. He zeroes in on only one thing. It is unnatural. It is unnatural. That, that, that's extremely significant because if we're hearing anything today, it's the exact opposite. That it is natural. Paul cuts straight to the quick. No, my friend, it is unnatural. And it is unnatural for at least two simple reasons. The first is basic anatomy. Basic anatomy. It uses the body in ways in which God never envisioned, never designed. It is basic, contrary to basic anatomy. And it is contrary to basic biology. If enough people are practicing homosexuals, what becomes of procreation? What becomes of the human race? It is contrary to nature. Paul's point, though, is what? That professing to be wise, they had become foolish. That having exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images in the form of mortal creatures, that having rejected the knowledge of God, the truth of God, for a lie, and having decided to worship the creature rather than the creator, man plunges himself into what? The suppression of truth. And his nuanced point here is simply what? Here's, here's an example of it. Here's a living example of it. That something that nature itself teaches you is wrong. That man will deny it. He will embrace it. And he will revel in it. Second point is this. Homosexuality is a shameless act. Verse 27, men committing shameless acts with men. Shameless acts. That's extremely significant, especially in light of what's happening today. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time here, but a little time. You, you, you trace where we are today. You go back 20, 30 years. It was inconceivable. I remember sitting in a, in a class, a seminary, late 90s, and a, and a debate, discussion breaking out over the role of, of women in the church, and in particular the pastorate. And I remember making the point, look, we should at least acknowledge the fact that 30, 40 years ago, we wouldn't even have been having this discussion. 30, 40 years ago, people would never have envisioned that we'd be sitting here arguing over the role of women in the church and whether or not they could be pastors. I said, you know what's going to happen? 30, 40 years ago from now, we're going to be arguing over homosexuals. I was wrong. It was only 15 years. It was only 15 years. What has happened? There's been such a desensitization within our society. I blame it. I put it squarely on the shoulders of the media and uh, television programs in particular, whereby homosexuality has been portrayed progressively over time. Many people, even many Christians, sadly, this is their staple diet. They feed on it. And it creates what? A desensitivity to it. Uh, the reaction is no longer what it should be. To the point now, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us when it comes to society. It doesn't really surprise me. It doesn't really alarm me. What alarms me are the discussions that are now taking place within what is broadly defined as evangelicalism. It's startling. That's what alarms me. Whereby we hear increasingly this argument that homosexuality, even in the context of the church, it is an acceptable lifestyle. Provided the partners are consenting adults who are committed to a monogamous, permanent, covenant relationship. 
And the argument goes like this. Look, when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it never condemns this kind of relationship. It never condemns a monogamous permanent covenant relationship. In the Bible, what it condemns is casual homosexuality, or really what we call promiscuity. And so whether it was the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, or what Paul is saying here, or says in 1 Corinthians, or other places, or any other passage of Scripture, no, what is condemned is sexual promiscuity in Scripture, whether it be homosexual or heterosexual. That's what's condemned. But Scripture never condemns a loving, lasting relationship between two consenting adults who are committed to a monogamous, permanent covenant relationship, whether they be heterosexual or homosexual. That is what we are hearing today within many camps within evangelicalism. My friend, you don't need to go any further than verse 27 to respond. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts. It is the act itself. It has nothing to do with the relationship. It has nothing to do with whether or not this is casual or permanent. It has nothing to do with whether or not the government gives it some sort of legal status and calls it marriage. It has nothing to do with the nature of the relationship. Please understand, Paul would have been exposed in his extensive travels in the Roman Empire. He would have been exposed to consenting adults who are committed to a monogamous, permanent, covenant relationship. That was not uncommon in the Roman Empire. He makes no differentiation here. He goes after what? The act itself. And it is shameless. Third point he makes is this. It is a judicial act. Right at the end of verse 27, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It is an abandonment. Not targeting the individual himself or herself, but the society of which they are a part. It is an abandonment, a handing over of that society to inconceivable and unimaginable sexual perversion arising from what? Idolatry. Arising from what? Men and women who are committed to the suppression of truth. He's not finished. I know you wish he was, but he's not. He takes us down this road now a third time, bringing us into verse 28 through to verse 32. And he makes his point again. Here's the result. Man revels in his idolatry. God reveals his wrath. He makes the point that because of idolatry, God turns them over to unlawful practices arising from debased minds. That's what he says, the outset, verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So there we have the two, again, the twofold result. Man revels in idolatry. He does not see fit to acknowledge God. God reveals his wrath. He gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, Paul has already made that point twice. Why does he feel the need to make it a third time? It's nuanced. What's he doing here? What's his point? I think it's simply this. He's guarding against something. Uh, We could state that in slightly different terms. He's challenging something. And let me try to put it in contemporary language. It's simply this. There's a danger. The danger is, as we read from verse 22 through to verse 27, uh, we start feeling, uh, as religious people, all high and mighty about ourselves. Well, I'm no sexual pervert. I don't wrestle with that or struggle with that. About time somebody said something about homosexuality. I'm going to go out and eat at Chick-fil-A three times this week just to do my part. 
right? Amen. Paul stops us dead in our tracks. And what's his point in verse 28? God gave them up to a debased, do not forget that expression, a debased mind. Yes, homosexuality, debased mind. I understand. No, 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 no. He goes on to mention 21 sins. Beginning in verse 29, they were filled. He goes to the heart of the issue, which is the heart itself. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. That's the starting point. Put those four at the bottom. Then he builds. They are full. So rising out of those first four, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, the realm of the heart. And then he builds on that. They are gossips, a debased mind, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Should I skip over the next one? Disobedient to parents, a debased mind, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul wants to make perfectly clear, my friend. I'm going to say this and then I'm going to run. He wants to make perfectly clear that in this passage of Scripture, he is talking about you, and he is talking about me. He is describing all of us, that we, by nature, apart from Christ and apart from sovereign grace, by nature, in the flesh, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And having suppressed that truth, we chase after idolatry, that idolatry has that, twofold, that result leading to God's abandonment to sin. All types of sins. We're not speaking exclusively here of homosexuality. It is a particular instance which shows the depth to which man can go. But it is not the only sin. It is not the worst sin in the world. Paul's point is simply this, that idolatry will manifest itself in innumerable ways in our lives. And all of this confirms his major point back in verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed. If we care to take a look, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And it is revealed how? Simply this, he permits unchecked sin to lead to greater sin. And that is why we are where we are as a nation. That is why we are where we are as a society. It is extremely discouraging. It is extremely depressing. It calls for deep repentance. It calls for heartfelt repentance. It calls for self-examination. It calls for the church, rather than being so quick to point a condemning finger, to take stock of its own condition and his own predicament, and his own status, his own state before a holy God. And yet in the midst of this depressing message, in the midst of this discouraging message, uh, there is unbelievable hope, isn't there? Three times, three times. I, I just noticed this. I think it was last year I noticed this for the first time. Uh, not, not the three references here, but what I'm about to say. 
Three times in this text, Paul uses that expression, gave them up, right? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. What a terrifying expression. He uses it one more time in the book of Romans. Pause for effect. See if anyone can think. Not in chapter 2, not in chapter 3. We have to go all the way to chapter 8. And he will use the expression one more time. Chapter 8, verse 32. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Abandoned. Abandoned him that we might be saved from eternal abandonment. Deserted him that we might be spared eternal desertion, poured out his wrath upon him, that having repented of our sin and utter sinfulness and having clung to the Lord Jesus Christ, his wrath might be turned away from us, his righteousness might be satisfied and fulfilled, and his mercy might be secured. We have to go. We have to go to one more passage of Scripture. Just leave Romans as we conclude and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have to go here and we have to end here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at what Paul writes beginning in verse 9. These are great verses. Very depressing to start, but it builds and it ends in a, in a splendid fashion. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Do you not know... Do you not know? Yes, we do know. What? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no hope. The righteous, unrighteous will not inherit inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is beautiful. Verse 11, he's writing to a church, and such were some of you. Oh, praise God for sovereign grace. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let me tear down a fallacy real quick. God does not accept us the way we are. He does not. Huge fallacy. God does not accept us the way we are. He accepts us in spite of who we are, that he might change us into what we are not. Do you understand the difference? And such were some of us, such were all of us who profess the name of Christ this day, dead in our trespasses and sins, without any hope or expectation of inheriting the kingdom of God. Oh, but God handed over, abandoned, gave up his son. And in Christ we are washed. In Christ we are sanctified. In Christ we are justified in his name. In Christ, we exchange foolishness for wisdom, sinfulness for righteousness. 
filthiness for holiness, condemnation for forgiveness, and wrath for mercy. I know I've said some controversial things this morning. You, know, you want to know one of my biggest fears? Fear, I fear, man. You want to know one of my biggest fears? This sermon gets put on our website, on the web. It's one of my biggest fears. I have no idea who sees these things. And you know the sound bites people could rip out of what I said this morning and how that could be used and misused and abused? I fear. I fear that sort of thing. And um, I put that aside. Uh, I fear for some here who could be deeply offended by what I have said, either given your own context today, your own experience, or perhaps the experience and uh, where maybe perhaps even one of your, your loved ones are at. And so let me uh, end with just a, a, a few thoughts, and I hope this, this will just be a defining moment and bring it all to a glorious, a glorious head, a glorious climax. Here it is, my friend. Truth cuts. It does. The truth cuts. But grace heals. The truth stings. Ooh, like iodine, an open wound, right? But grace soothes. The truth disturbs. But grace comforts. The truth demands that we declare what a righteous God says, whether we like it or not. Grace demands that we declare what a compassionate God says. Where there is, and my friends, please hear this, where there is brokenness for sin, he promises healing. Where there is conviction for sin, he promises mercy. Where there is weariness for sin, he promises rest. And where there is repentance for sin, he promises forgiveness. And he promises all of that in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we praise you for the gospel, for it is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. And we pray that it might be someone's salvation this day. We pray for your church around this globe as your word has gone forth in many places, many languages, and is yet to go forth. And we do pray that by your word, accompanied by your spirit, your kingdom would come. The name of your son, the Lord Jesus, might be highly exalted. And we pray, our Father, that the nations would look to you, look to you in heartfelt repentance, look to you in wonder at your mercy poured out in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking closer to home, we pray unction upon all that we have heard this day. Pray that your Spirit might take it now and apply it to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gathered in this place. And we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.